Happy New Year, water people, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Hill, along with my partner, Dave Rastovich. This season of the Water People podcast is supported by Patagonia, whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to save our home planet. We wanted to kick off the year with some perspective, so we sat down to talk story with adventurer Rick Ridgway about the arc of his life's work from stretching the possibilities of human physical capacity toward using adventure sports and expeditions for earth care and repair. Rick's earliest adventures were oceanic, sailing and surfing, but he's recognized now amongst the world's foremost mountaineers. In 1976, Rick joined the American Bicentennial Everest Expedition, and in 1978, he and three others made the first ascent of K2, the second highest peak on Earth. They were the first team to do it without oxygen. Rick made the first documented traverse of Borneo and the first crossing on foot of a corner of Tibet so remote no outsider had ever seen it before. These, amongst many other adventures, far off the beaten path. For 15 years, Rick was the Vice President of Environmental Affairs and then VP of Public Engagement at Patagonia. He is an accomplished filmmaker and the author of seven books, most recently the memoir Life Lived Wild, which is packed with stories that made us want to start planning our next adventure. We hope you enjoy this chat with legendary conservationist Rick Ridgway. We acknowledge the Bundjalung Nation, the first and ongoing custodians of the land and waters where we work and play, who have lived, worked, and cared for this sea country for tens of thousands of years. Respect and gratitude to all First Nations people who continue to practice the cultural, spiritual, and educational customs of their ancestors. We always begin these conversations in the same way, and that's by asking about a time or experience after which you were never the same. Do you have a particular story like that that you'd be willing to share with us? In 1980, when I was on that climb with uh, Yvonne Chouinard and one of my very best friends, Jonathan Wright, on an ascent of a remote peak in China in the first year that China opened to outside mountaineers. And for all of us, it was a, it was like a dream come true to get to go to this nearly unknown place that had been before then, you know, only a dream that you would ever in your lifetime be able to see that part of the world on the eastern edge of the Tibetan plateau in a, in a country that had been closed to outsiders for 50 years. The adventure, the travel just to see the place was reason alone for the trip, never mind the, the climb of this beautiful 25,000-foot peak. And, and things went well on the climb until one day coming down from our camp at 20,000 feet, uh, four of us, including Yvonne Chouinard and, and Jonathan Wright, were caught in an avalanche that swept us down the side of the mountain. And all that time, which I estimated was at least 60 seconds, I thought I was dead. I didn't think there was any way I could get out of it alive because we were caught in this sea of cascading snow, and I was struggling and fighting to stay on top and not get sucked down inside. And it flew over a cliff, probably 50 or 100 meters high, and we were in this cascading snowfall, launched out into space, and I didn't think there was any way I could survive that. And then I did get sucked inside the snow, and I just remember these white blocks of ice around me that were punching me in the sides and the back. And I was just waiting for the final blow when I surfaced again. And I could see Yvonne right in front of me struggling and somebody else off to the side. And then it started to slow and stopped. And I was still alive, even though I was injured. And I soon realized that I was the least injured of all four of us. And then I had to struggle to help my colleagues, my buddies, and try to tend to them. And I soon realized that of the four of us, my close friend Jonathan was the most injured. And then I tried to keep him alive. I held him in my arms for a half hour. And then finally he died. Yvonne was delirious with a concussion and broken ribs and blood coming down his face. And, and he didn't even know what had happened. And I remember him standing over me and looking up and said, Yvonne, Jonathan just died because I don't think he knew. And even then he didn't understand. 
And the next day we buried Jonathan on the side of the mountain and I went home, we all went home and you know, I went into this long reflection about whether I could keep going back to the mountains and keep climbing. I didn't know if I could. It took a long time to figure it out. But looking back now, uh, all these years later, that I'm in my mid-70s, that was the most significant event of, of, my, of my life because it, it required me to think deeply about what I had taken from my life in the mountains and in the ocean in nature and decide whether the risks of keeping that life going with the risks that it entailed was worth it. And eventually I decided it, it was. So that long reflection is, is the main turning point in, in my life. And when I look back now and reflect on it, I can see that that introspection was also why I felt ready to marry when I did and, and start a family. So again, it was a buoy in the sense of a buoy being a turning point when your life is going in one direction and then some major event happens and you, and you round the buoy and you're heading in a different direction, but you're still on the same boat. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Our podcast is called Water People. We often speak with ocean people, rarely speak about frozen water. It's a completely foreign experience to me. What is the likelihood of surviving an avalanche? I can't imagine that it would be very likely. Well, there were four of us in that avalanche, and three of us survived. Uh, And I have had other friends in avalanches that have survived, and I've had friends that haven't. Uh, I don't know what the chances are in any particular avalanche. Uh, You know, it's probably about half the time maybe that you come out of it uh, successfully. If I had to pick a number, I've had a lot of friends that haven't made it through. But it's a, it's a treat for me to be speaking with you guys this morning on a, a podcast for water people because, you know, water has been a big part of my life and not just frozen water, not just, you know, ice and glaciers. I, as a, a young boy in my American high school years, started surfing and climbing at the same time and and they became both parallel interests, uh, and even certainly with climbing, not just interest, but obsession. And my parents separated early in my life when I was only 11 or 12, and my father had gone to Northern California and lived in a rural area where I had followed him for a couple years and lived there while my mother and brother lived in the southern part of the state of California. And that's where my interest in mountaineering started, was near Lake Tahoe. But then my father was a a 'er ne'er-do-well character. Uh, If there was one overarching component of his life, it was an avoidance of responsibility. And he actually, when I was 13 or 14, uh, burned our house down for the insurance money. And I lost everything. Um, And he disappeared. I never saw him for two years. He headed down to the South Pacific, got a job on Kwajalein Atoll in the Marshall Islands. So I moved in with my best friend and spent the rest of the school year there. And he and I would go up to the mountains around Lake Tahoe. And one time we decided to try and climb some mountain that we saw because I had seen this article about the first Americans to climb Mount Everest in National Geographic. And and I'd just been fascinated with that whole idea. So he and I climbed this peak called Thunder Mountain. And it wasn't easy. There was one section near the summit where we got to a, a vertical step and couldn't figure out how to get up it. So I had this idea that I got on top of his shoulders and then I could reach the lip of the step. And then I hung on with everything I could while he crawled up my body. Wow. <laughs> and, then, and then coming down, we jumped you know, onto a narrow ledge, being super careful not to tumble off. But I was stoked, you know, like that was it. But then my father wrote back and said he had switched jobs and had been relocated to Hawaii, and he wanted me to come and live with him again. And I didn't trust him at all, but yet the idea of going to Hawaii was more than I could resist. So the only college I applied to was the University of Hawaii, and I got in, and off I went. Uh, But it didn't last long because, you know, I was trying to be a serious student. I was a responsible kid. And I would come home from my classes and 
he'd be in this little house that I lived in with him, and he'd have all of his bar floozies with him, and they would be partying into the night, and, and I couldn't handle it. So it's kind of the reverse situation <laughs> that you usually get in a family. And I would go down to the beach to study on the windward side of Oahu. And one day I was walking back, and this guy called me over, and he said, I see you walking through here every day, and I just introduced myself, and you know, I told him I lived across the street, and I was going down to the beach to study. And he said, um, you know, I've got a boat in Honolulu in the Alawai Harbor, and we go out two or three times a week. I'm always looking for crew. You want to come along? I said, yes. So I started learning how to sail. And then one day I had this idea, and I went to him and I said, would you be interested in letting me live on your boat if I did all the varnishing? It was a 36-foot Choi sloop, you know, teak with all kinds of bright work on it. And he took about a nanosecond to say yes. <laughs> so I moved into the Alawai and, you know, started going back to surfing. I'd done a little bit of that in high school. And then I started sailing, uh, and I just got deep into it. I was living on that boat uh, and pedaling my bicycle up to the University of Hawaii campus when one day, as summer, the summer break was approaching, um, I had this idea to go to the yacht club and, and post a sign uh, that I was hoping to find a crew position, you know, heading like to the South Seas, maybe. So I wrote up a card and went down to the Hawaii Yacht Club and talked my way inside and went to post it on the bulletin board to discover it was full of cards just like mine. And I thought, oh, but I put it up there anyway. And about two days later, there was this knock on the companionway of this sloop I lived on. And here was this guy saying he'd seen my card. And I welcomed him aboard. And he said he had a, a sloop, 36-foot sloop, and he needed another crew member. He said, how long have you been sailing? And I said, four months. And he goes, oh. <laughs> and then I thought, but I go out two or three times a week. And he goes, oh, okay. And I could see it wasn't working out. But he was a polite guy, and I told him, you know, I was from California, and I'd only been in Hawaii for less than a year. And, I, and then for some reason I said, it was a real, real difficult decision to come here because um, I just got this passion for rock climbing and mountaineering, and I didn't know if I could give up the mountains and, and find a, a new direction in the ocean. And his eyes brightened and said, well, I'm a climber too. <laughs> so we hit it off, and he invited me to join five other guys, he and four others. There were six of us all together on a 36-foot sloop. None of us knew how to sail that well, and off we went to Tahiti. And that was my first adventure. Um, and it was a, a misadventure. You know, my friend Yvonne Chouinard, the founder and owner of Patagonia, uh, famously says that adventures only start when things start to go wrong. And, and we had things go wrong uh, we had been out to sea for 24 days when uh, one day in the cockpit, I saw a fly land on the companionway. And at first, I didn't think anything about it. And then I thought, guys, there's a fly. So we, we knew land had to be somewhere nearby. And soon we saw this island. You know, we were so excited. And then we just were panicked because it wasn't Tahiti. <laughs> and we sailed around it. But we couldn't figure out what it was, and, and there was no obvious pass through the surrounding reef. But we could see people on the beach, you know, like waving to us. We went around it twice, uh, and we didn't know what to do. Like, we were lost. Um, I had been doing some of the navigating because my father had given me a sextant, you know, as a going-away present, and I had this book about how you navigate, and I had been doing all the, you know, I regretted not paying more attention in my math classes. Because <laughs> back then you had to take these sightings with your sextant and, and get the, the time signal from a, a big radio that we had um, on a stopwatch and, and then do these calculations to figure out you were, and clearly I wasn't doing it right. And the guy that owned the boat didn't have a clue. But then one of the guys on the boat was, a, well, what today we would call a, a geek. And he, as a kid, had been a ham radio-like hobbyist. And ham radios were these long-frequency radio things, and, and these hobbyists would talk to each other around the world. So he knew all about radios. So he took this big transistor radio that we had to get the time signal for navigating, and he made a directional antenna out of a 
coat hanger making a loop, you know, and he wired it into the radio. And then we tuned in Radio Tahiti. And here was this French guy, you know, speaking and half Tahitian, half French. We could hear drum playing. And it was the radio broadcast from Papayete. So then he turned the radio and he started moving it around until the signal got as strong as it could be. And then he held it very carefully. And then he pointed perpendicular to the orientation of the radio and said, Tahiti's that way. And then he paused and he turned 180 degrees and he said, or it's that way. (laughs) (laughs) And we had to guess the mistake we had made. So we went in the direction that we hoped was the best one and sailed all day, nothing. And we were almost out of food. We were surviving on fish we caught and water that we would catch in the mainsail during squalls. And I was on the night watch, just straining, looking at the horizon. I couldn't see anything. And then just before dawn, I had gone down into my bunk and I was just laying there thinking, what are we going to do if we can't find this island? How long can we survive? And can we keep catching fish? And can we keep trapping? Well, you know, I had, I was 18 years old. I'd never experienced anything like this. And then just before dawn, up on deck, someone said, land ho! And I rushed up. And there, silhouetted against uh, the moonlit sky, was the spires of Maria. And we had found Tahiti. So that was my first adventure. And I, it's a long story, but I'm a water person as well as a mountain person. Mm. Uh, I have a lot of questions in my mind after listening to that story. Rick and I, I can't help but wonder about comfort zones and ideas of comfort zones. Do you feel that you were escaping American domestic life at that time in search of wild and unpredictable experiences like that as a bit of a response to yeah, domestic life at that time? Or do you feel like that urge to adventure is just innately in you, in all people? And it doesn't matter if we are coming from a domesticated space or not. You just have that urge. Well, thanks for that question, Dave. Uh, because it's, for me anyway, it's both. I told you how my father had burned the house down where we lived in Northern California near Lake Tahoe and had disappeared to the South Seas. And I had spent the rest of the school year living with my best friend's family. But then after that, I returned to Southern California where my mother and brother lived to finish my uh, American high school years with her. And I had been gone about three years from the place I had grown up as a youth that was rural. Uh, We lived in an orange grove near a river that I would spent all my, you know, boyhood time in that I could, playing with my buddies and and exploring and, and even hunting. I had a little single shot twenty two. And when I returned just a few years later, it was gone. Uh the orange groves had been nearly all of them uh bulldozed uh and replaced with track houses. It was stunning how fast it had happened. The the river was channeled uh, into a concrete channel and it was gone. I told you how while I lived up near Lake Tahoe, I had uh, seen that story about the Americans climbing Everest, and I'd climbed that peak with my good buddy uh, in high school. And then when I got down and faced the decimation of industrialization, the conversion from nature to man-made environments of, this, of my childhood haunts, I started fleeing, really, is the right word, on a little motor scooter I had to the mountains surrounding the Los Angeles Basin. Uh, and I continued to pursue my interest in, in, in climbing and mountains. That's when I bought myself some crampons and ice axe, and I used to go up there and, and climb peaks by myself in the winter uh, when they were iced and snowed over. Um, but then looking back on it, I was doing that because I needed to get away from the destruction of my, of my childhood haunts. Uh, and it was to, to, to find solace and solitude and, and, um, some sort of, you know, internal relief from the sadness that I felt from seeing that happen. And, and sailing to the South Pacific on the first adventure I had was a continuation of, um, 
that seeking of solace from the, those experiences of, of seeing my boyhood haunts bulldozed over. But then at the same time, it wasn't just uh, an escape, but it was a, it was a, a it was a, a like a, a magnetic attraction to it as well. Um, I think if I would have had the chance to go on that sailing adventure, even without that boyhood experience, I, I still would have probably taken it uh, because of the pull. But at the same time, there was something else going on. There was this search for the meanings uh, to my own life that I was searching for that I seemed only to be able to find in, in wilder areas. Uh, and that was a connection that held for my entire life. Oh, that brings up so many questions. It seems like with surfing, surfing can be both a fleeing toward wild and also a fleeing from terrestrial life. And can't help but wonder about the influence of your father. You said that avoiding responsibility was sort of the overarching theme of your experience of him. Was that true for you in your later adventures? Was there a sense of fleeing from or, or, or was fleeing to the primary driver as you went on to these grand adventures to the highest points on the planet? Well, it was neither fleeing from or, or trying to avoid responsibility. It, it, never, it never had that element. Uh, in fact, it was almost the opposite of that. It was embracing responsibility because I had to be responsible uh, to myself to try to survive uh, and make the best decisions I could. And I had to be equally, if not more, responsible to the people I was with, my colleagues and my rope partners, to make sure you know, they got through, uh, and I didn't make some decision that would you know, endanger all of us. So it was an embrace of responsibility. And I don't know, I haven't really thought about it, you know, in some sort of Freudian way, but perhaps it was, there was an element in that of trying to live life differently than, than the way my father had. And that feeling of uh, avoiding uh, the paths that he had chosen, that part was very conscious. And always there in my head that that is not the way I wanted to live my life. What I appreciated so much about your presentation last night, Rick, was the tracing of this trajectory from being someone deeply fascinated by the living world who transformed that fascination into a deep responsibility for saving these places, for protecting wild places, for dedicating your life and your livelihood to conservation work. Was there a particular moment that changed you from just being fascinated to being committed? Last night when I uh, gave a presentation here in Byron Bay, you know, uh, about my book and, and my life, how as I had finished the book, it in its first draft had been just a series of stories about my adventures. And I had had a friend of mine read them and, and challenge me uh, that they weren't connected by anything more than me. And with me is the only through line that it was falling short of being what it what it could be as a as a memoir. I needed to see my life not just as the element connecting these otherwise disparate stories, but I had to think more deeply about my own life and where I had started and where I was now that I was in my mid seventies and and be more open and honest with a potential readership. And I accepted her challenge, and that challenge included trying to think through more clearly where I had started to where I had ended up. And after thinking about it for a while, I came back to her and I said, "Well, I I think when I started in my teens and twenties, it was all about the adventures. It was about the sports and certainly the the people I was with and the places we were going. But over the course of my life, it shifted from being about the sports to being about saving the places where we did the sports. And that was the arc. And, and she liked that. She said, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And, and you should just, in your book, tell the stories that have something to do with that. So I rewrote the book. But then to answer your question about whether there was a, an epiphanous moment uh, in that arc of conversion, it was a, a slow and gradual transition that in turn was an accumulation of learnings from the people I was with and experiences from seeing as carefully as I could the changes that were going on around me. It was bearing witness to ice melting one decade after another. 
in front of my eyes, seeing geologic change that in the previous history of our planet had been so slow, seeing that actually happen in, in human time, geologic time and human time. When I got my head around that, oh, it was profound. Seeing grasslands turn into deserts over the decades of visiting the same places one decade to the next, forest clear-cut. I've seen these things, and the friends I've been with have seen them. And, and as those um, changes that I witnessed accumulated, then so did my commitment to doing something about changing that. And then it wasn't just seeing those things, but it was around the campfires, talking to the friends I was with on adventures, especially Yvonne Chouinard and Doug Tompkins. Those guys were my two of my most important mentors, and, and especially Doug Tompkins, the, the founder of the North Face, who sold that company and invested in a women's wear company called, that he called Esprit. And, you know, those of listening to this will recognize that brand. Doug sold it to use the money to go to South America to buy ranches that were degraded and convert them into protected areas. But I mentioned Doug because of all of us on our trips, he was the one who could see furthest over the horizon, who could see the trends, who, 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 could, who first really picked up on what was happening to the wild part of our planet by we human beings. And he was a, a big influence on me. He would always show up to our trips with a, a new reading list for me. And he'd always have new ideas and insights from the people who were his mentors, some of the leading environmental thinkers of the time, especially a Norwegian named Arne Ness. So it was through Doug that I was, you know, learning intellectually about the environmental crisis. And this was early on, uh, going back to the early and mid-80s. So it was a slow evolution of conversion. You, you quote Doug, Doug Tompkins, in the prologue, of your book saying, going out into the wilds of the world at an early age where nature was basically untouched, we got into our souls a sense of beauty. Watching you speak and seeing the images that you showed us last night, I couldn't help but think about how you feel about your grandkids' lives, about future generations' lives, maybe not having access to the wildness, to the, to the beauty in the way that you got to experience the world. And in particular, I'm, I'm fascinated and I'm interested to know how you think about the point in human history at which you came of age where technology was at a certain point where you had access to, to climbing at a certain level, but technology wasn't so pervasive as it, if, as it is now to where it stifles or dilutes the experience. Or separates so you from the experience. Yeah, yeah. Those are a few questions, but... One thing I hope to uh, teach my grandkids, uh, I have four grandchildren now, ages two through eight, and I hope I can impart to them a more accurate sense of what I call baseline than they will otherwise have just seeing the world as it, as it is to them growing up. And I hope that I can help them understand and visualize the world as it was to me at their age, when so much more of it was, was untrammeled by the footprints of we human beings in a metaphorical way. But I also hope that I can help them see not only what the world looked like through my eyes at their age as, a, as again, what I call a baseline for comparison, but to be able to maybe do what I've done, to see if I can help guide them to understand what nature and wildness looked like going much further back. And maybe I can help guide them to what in my own life has been a really useful exercise to internalize at a visceral level what the planet was like even before we human beings uh, emerged. <clears throat> Certainly to understand what it looked like before our species diaspora out of Africa because, you know, to me, that's the baseline that's most important uh, to understand. Because then, when you understand that as a baseline, you have a more accurate and full understanding of the extent to which human, we human beings have really altered the face of the earth. Now, the most important baseline is probably not before we 
or a species, you know, going back three to four million years ago. But it was before we left Africa. That's the most fascinating one for all of us to think about and, and, and to learn. That's especially true here in Australia to uh, understand what this island continent looked like before human beings arrived and then to understand what the impact was uh, on it once we did arrive. And I've done the same thing in, in my home, my home continent, as it were, in North America, and especially in my home state where I live in California, where I've done a lot of research to understand uh, the assemblage of large mammals that were there uh, 13 and 14,000 years ago before human beings reached uh, that part of, of the world, and to understand how there was uh, at that time um, a stress on wildlands and wildlife from climate change, a natural caused climate change, probably from volcanic eruptions. But there had been many of those over the millennia. And the animals there had all survived them. But then another one hit, another shift in climate, and it coincided with the arrival of human beings who were very effective hunters and also had the ability to alter the landscape with fire. And those two things, combined with the climate change at that time, was more than the animals could survive. And 80% of the mammals went extinct. So I've been fortunate enough to have been in wilderness where the footprint and the impact of we human beings is absolutely minimal and even in places unnoticeable. You know, I've been in a few places where for days on end, walking and tramping and trekking, you can't see any impact of our species, where the animals have never seen human beings. Uh, and instead of fleeing from you, they come up and seek you out out of curiosity because they've never seen any two-legged animal like us before. I've seen a few of those places. And knowing what they look and feel like, I've been able to use that to understand what it looked and felt like in my area of North America before human beings got there. That's my baseline. Uh, that's the one that I use to measure and see the change of the landscape that we've created. So when I take off from the Los Angeles airport and that plane lifts up over the basin, I very often look out the window and the, the sweep of buildings and houses the channelized Los Angeles River. In my imagination, it starts to morph and disappear. And I see the vast expanses of cypress forests, and I see the Los Angeles River in its winds and bends through the grasslands. And, and I can see the, the myriad herds of uh, zebra-like horses that were there. I can see the three species of big cats, the two species of wolves, the 11 species of vultures flying through the air, the giant tree sloths that could stand on their hind legs and reach up into the trees 20 and 30 feet. It comes alive. And I can then wake up and look out and see all these buildings and really viscerally know what we've done to this landscape. And I hope I can teach my grandkids that same skill. It's a really important one to own. Apologies for interrupting the conversation, but we'd like to take a moment to recognize the generous folks who help make this podcast possible. Sun Butter Skincare is committed to protecting people and the planet. They make vegan, reef-safe SPF 50 sunscreen packaged in reusable and recyclable tins. They're also the world's first certified palm oil-free sunscreen brand. Check out sunbutter.com.au to learn more about their skin and ocean-friendly lines of sunscreen, surf zinc, and skin care. Thanks also to Gary McNeil Concepts, who make cosmic surfboards for cosmic people. Gaz's boards combine recycled and plant-based materials that are built to last without sacrificing performance. To learn more, head to garymcnealconcepts.com. Such a gift for those of us listening, Rick, because I feel every time I've gone to California in the last couple of decades, I just am in an overwhelm state. I, I look down, all I see is the chaos of humanity run wild in that space, and it, it just over, overwhelms me completely. And so um, having a skill like that, even just for as a coping mechanism, to me sounds amazing. I would love to be able to look down at the grid-like patterns of 
suburbia and envision it in the way that you just shared. And I feel like a lot of us who come from this part of the world, the lower hemisphere, when we go north and we speak with anyone who I guess is really paying attention, I feel like we have so much to learn from you all that you're further along the track in terms of the industrialization of places and peoples and you can, I guess, tell us about some of the pitfalls and some of the signs to look for in order to hopefully avoid situations like what we see with LA and the straightening of every watercourse and I guess the suburbia run rampant. And so I guess what I'm trying to get to is that when we are living through these times right now where such radical events like geologic time are happening to each of us and we're having bushfires that run rampant over this island continent and then floods that have just washed so many of us um, around. I also have spoken with friends in Santa Barbara within the Patagonia family who have lived through similar stories in the last couple of years, the fires and the slides and the floods in the Santa Barbara area, and feel like we're all kind of echoing each other with what we're living through right now. There's so many of us who have have lived through these same pretty traumatic experiences. Do you feel in your, uh, in your um, arc of your life that right now there is a ramping up of these experiences even more so than a decade or two ago? Do you feel like with a longer perspective, being in your 70s now, that you can share with us where it, it, it is feeling a little that way, like a peak is forming of some sort? Yeah, this is my uh, fourth trip to uh, your country over the last 15 years, close to 20 now. And I can see a shift in the civil society of Australia around the issue of climate change, where more people uh, are getting concerned about it enough that they're uh, realizing that even as individuals, they've got to do something. And so there is a shift going on here as there is in just about every developed country in, in the world. Uh, you know, and, and that's, that's the good news. We all have to hope that there's enough people that open their eyes to see and understand what's going on to do something about it. Now, I'm also optimistic that we humans can, can figure this out. I volunteer for a organization based in the United States called One Earth that has raised money to fund scientists to research actions that could meet the Paris Accords of keeping global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or lower using only existing technology. And that includes uh, several scientists here in Australia, especially at the University of Melbourne. And uh, those scientists, uh, globally over 100 of them, have funded by us... uh, been doing this work for over seven or eight years. And now most of that science has come in. It's been peer-reviewed and published. And what uh, this group One Earth has learned is that the solutions to climate change uh, are in three categories. Uh, And the first is the uh, continued but accelerated transition of energy production from fossil fuels to renewables. We have to do that and we have to accelerate the transition and achieve it by 2030 and 2050 at the latest to 100% conversion uh, off of fossil fuels. And, you know, that transition is, is accelerating. And, and we're still within the acceleration, uh, the graph of acceleration to keep the planet uh, at 1.5. But we can't achieve it with just that. We also have to uh, scale the transition from uh, industrial agriculture to regenerative food and fiber production. And that has to accelerate as well. And the science of that conversion is coming in. The third thing that we have to do, again, this is just using existing technologies. This is not investing in some new gigantic scrubbers to clean carbon out of the atmosphere, creating more opportunities for so-called impact investors. No, let that (laughs) shit go. (laughs) The third category is to protect nature because nature knows how to filter carbon, how to sequester it, how to take it out of the air and put it back into plants and trees and especially soils. 
And we need to, following the science we funded, safeguard about 50% of the planet. Now, that number's emerged recently in an increasing number of conversations uh, that we've, some of which our group has helped influence, uh, including the Pope. We got the, uh, some of our science findings in front of the Pope a few months ago. And about, I think it was only eight weeks ago or so, you know, he came out with a statement supporting the idea of protecting half the planet, of protecting uh, half of it as natural systems for the reasons we're advocating. So we're getting the word out. Now, to get back to your question, Dave, you know what you could learn from, let's call it the horror of the Los Angeles Basin. <laughs> That's not an overstatement. You know, when you look out that plane window next time you come in, what would that basin look like if developers in the 1920s and 30s had the insight to, instead of channelize the Los Angeles River, you know, what if they kept undeveloped a wide swath of it? Uh, and just pick a number. You know, what if it was a half a mile wide? Uh, across its channel, and that channel were allowed to be wild. And not only would it have provided a corridor of animals from the foothills surrounding the Los Angeles Basin, you know, down onto the coast, but it would have been such an amazing uh, reprieve and a source of solace for people living in an urban area like that. And what if they had had the insights to set aside and zone for protection, you know, more more parks, and allow some of those parks to you know, be wild parks uh, and wild nature. Well, the the basin would have would have a much different look, wouldn't it? Uh, so, with a country like yours, where there are so few people in such a vast space, you still have a lot a lot of opportunities here to do it right. And you also are on uh, in a perfect position to, you know, protect half of nature. When I say protecting half of nature. Uh, it includes uh, completely wild natural systems like you would have in national parks, but it also includes some uh, areas adjacent to urban areas, you know, where perhaps there's uh, a more of a, a mixed use, but still uses that safeguard uh, the ability of nature to sequester carbon. I sometimes remind us that, that, that we have a predicament, and I learned to use that word from my mentor, Doug Tompkins. Because he said crises are things that rally people to solutions and predicaments are a little more difficult. And the predicament that we human beings face right now is simply that there's too many of us on the planet using too much of the planet's limited resources. And I then explained that there are two major symptoms of that predicament. And one is climate and the other is extinction. And those are the twin interlocked crises that we human beings are facing right now. Uh, and they're all rooted in our numbers on the planet, and more importantly, on the amount of resources our numbers are using from a planet that has a limited amount of resources it can share with us. So this idea of, of half-Earth is recognizing that there's too many of us, recognizing that we're using too much stuff, and recognizing that we have to learn to restrain ourselves. We have to learn to allow nature to go about its business on half the planet, we have to learn how to go about our business on the other half of the planet that are in ways, uh, that are in ways more compatible with, uh, natural systems that allow the earth to breathe more naturally. And, and we can do that. Mm. Do you uh, think we have to be at a crisis point before we change? You know how on a personal level, a lot of us won't quit smoking till we're struggling to walk up the stairs, you know, to your house at night or something or we won't you know, kick other habits until, you know, we really have some sort of personal crisis moment. Do you think it's we, we just collectively have to go through the same kind of process? Um, I'm hopeful that we can rally enough people to commit to the solutions to avoid the planet warming beyond 1.5 degrees centigrade without a crisis that's, you know, so significant that we're going to lose millions and millions of people. Um, and that may happen. Uh, it may take a crisis of that magnitude uh, before we wake up. But I'm, I'm fearful that if things get bad enough that we have a crisis like that, that we may be beyond the tipping point, uh, that we may have you know, unleashed the stored-up methane in Arctic boglands, for example, and which could you know, tip us into a point of accelerated warming that goes well past 
1.5 into 2 and 3 degrees Celsius, because if that happens, then we are going to lose uh, probably most of the human population on planet Earth. Many of us find it easy to fall into the self-loathing of being human, of witnessing the, the changes that our species has been responsible for, continues to be responsible for. Um, and what I appreciated about your re-envisioning what you were seeing out of the and the airplane window flying out of LAX was the use of imagination. And that really is one of the joys and the superpowers of being human is the use of imagination to make change in the world. Um, Rick, you were part of a group of adventurers, business people, wild men who used their imaginations in the world. Can you tell us who the Dubois are, were? <laughs> It was the, the little band of um, friends uh, that were my climbing and adventure partners, and including uh, Yvonne Schreinard and Doug Tompkins and, and a few other friends. And we would, uh, one or the other, come up with an idea for uh, an adventure uh, someplace on the planet, and a few of, would sign up, and off we would go. And a year or two later, uh, some others of our posse would have another idea, and we would organize that. And you know, the group might shift and change a little bit and off we would go, but it was the sill, the, the same posse. And uh, Doug, who at the time owned Esprit, the women's wear company, had offices around the world, including one in Tokyo and a design studio that he visited frequently. And he was there one time when he picked up a comic book about a band of uh, guys that went around having adventures and it was called the, the Do Boys in that Japanese fashion of having a contorted English uh, name for for something. And he thought, ah, that's us. So he's the one that came up with that moniker. And it held. Although now I don't use it too often because uh, of the U.S. politics uh, in the group in, in America called the Proud Boys. Uh, and just the name doesn't have the, the resonance anymore, uh, the political neutrality and the sense of fun and mischievous that it, that it did. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I, I think about that, Rick, with so many of the adventures you've had and I think about the play in it but also the meaningful play in your stories, in your great book and the, the line where you are having obviously a great time with close friends, though it's also personally very meaningful and also tied into a planetary sort of scope as well and preservation of species and whatnot. Did you all sit around the campfire after a big day of exertion with a big bottle of wine or something or, I don't know, a couple of spliffs or something, sit around and just throw out ideas all night? Was it that kind of banter with you, with the group, where you just – say anything, throw it out there, spitball ideas with each other, see what hung or what just fell away. Was there, what was the dynamic here when you were, when you were exhausted physically but still lit up in your mind and your, your imagination as a group? Well, sometimes uh, we would perhaps be too tired. It, it would be an early night <laughs> with probably an early call in the morning again. But then, yes, often uh, it would be, you know, around the fire and I've come through an age when uh, we were generally in places where you're still allowed to have fires because there's no one around. There were, there were no rules <laughs> to break. <laughs> but, yeah, I can think of a lot of nights uh, when we would be spitballing ideas. Uh, and some of those things I hope to, I've shared in my book, uh, this memoir I wrote recently, Life Lived Wild. And some of those conversations very much included the things we've been discussing here on on the podcast, including the discussions we've had about baselines and how important those are. I can remember conversations about, about that, many conversations about humans' tendency to disfigure their own nest, as it were. You know, like, where does that come from? And that's a a politically very charged conversation to have these days around whether indigenous peoples, you know, naturally have this innate commitment to protecting their nest more than industrialized civilization does. And the answer is absolutely yes. But the answer is also very nuanced. 
And I know that, and that's where the political minefield comes in. Because indigenous peoples by nature don't necessarily, you know, have a DNA-driven commitment to protecting the nest. It doesn't always happen. And my own observations in my 70-some years of going out into the wilds now is that you got to keep your eyes open to seeing things as they are. Once Doug Tompkins and I were up in the high Arctic on a kayaking trip, uh, and we had a Inuit with us who was there to safeguard us from polar bears. Uh, you know, he he was assigned to us by the Canadian government, and he was there with his his son as well. and And we really enjoyed the comradeship of them, especially the boy. It was terrific to have him along on our on our trip, which was meant to study beluga whales. And one night around the fire, which wasn't really a fire, it was our little camp stove because there was no firewood in the high Arctic. You know, we got in the conversation about uh, the Inuit's complaint that we Westerners, the we, the extended uh, Canadian government that he included us in, even though we were Americans, that we were, you know, inhibiting uh, his and his friends' ability to hunt as they wished. And then we got into this conversation and said, well, if you hunted all the belugas out until there was just two left, a female and a male beluga, would you still kill one of them? And he said, yes. And we said, why? Because it's my right to do it. And you don't have that right to take away that right. So I thought deeply about that. And I've had similar experiences in other places in the world. And and those experiences with other people's um especially in Africa where I've kind of gone deep into meditating on a homo sapiens relationship with wild animals and that how that relationship evolved over millions of years and and then what happened during that diaspora out of Africa that I mentioned earlier and you know what's happened here in Australia when so much of the marsupial megafauna went extinct when human beings first arrived what happened in New Zealand when the Maoris first got there and 13 species of moas disappeared what happened when human beings arrived in North America and 80% of the megafaunal species went extinct within a three and 400 year period of our arrival? That was not coincidence. In thinking about this as objectively as I could with, as, with my eyes as wide open as I can keep them to see things as they are, I've come to the conclusion that we have the same basic imperatives as wild animals do, that, that we have an imperative to eat, to not be eaten, and to procreate. And that we have carried forward from our origins in Africa those imperatives. But we also have a fourth one that is perhaps to our species unique among species. And that's our uh, imperative to have meaning in our lives. Uh, to know where we've come from and where we're going. Uh, to have a sense of our place in the circle of life. Uh, and as different cultures and societies have thought through that imperative, the indigenous ones have most often come to the conclusion that we have to learn how to live in harmony with our fellow creatures. But even indigenous societies still have to recognize the other imperatives that we've carried forward as animals ourselves. Uh, And therein lies the risk and danger, because in our Western cultures, we seem to have forgotten those things wholeheartedly, where we've come under this illusion that we have this God-given power to, as gods ourselves, manage nature and shape nature uh, to our needs. So we have to use that fourth imperative to overcome the first three. Uh, Regardless of what society we're in, we need to recognize that as predators ourselves, we're like the lion that gets into the, the sheep pen and kills all the sheep, even though It can only eat one, and it does it just because it can. And we have that same capacity, and we have to be very, very mindful of that. Mm. On the topic of meaning-making, Rick, one of the parts that I loved about your book was your writings about your partnership, your marriage. And I was curious to ask you what, what that's meant to you in the context of a big, wild, adventurous life to have to have love to come back to. Yeah. I've had a few significant changes in my life in the last few years. 
One of the biggest was just seven years ago now, uh, when I was on a kayak trip with Yvonne and Doug, and Doug and I were in a, a double kayak, and it capsized in really cold water. And the others uh, had to turn around and, and rescue us, but we were in very cold water, uh, long enough that I lost consciousness and uh, just barely made it out, but Doug didn't and he died of hypothermia. So similar to uh, that avalanche I was in in 1980, you know, once again, one of my closest friends died next to me, and I made it through. And it wasn't necessarily dealing with survivor's guilt, but it was recognizing how any of us cannot be alive. And it can happen so soon and suddenly, and to such surprise sometimes, that I needed to remember what I'd learned in 1980. The importance of living every day as fully as I could. And, and those lessons served me well um, just a few years after that, three years ago now when my wife got cancer, my wife of 40 years, and, and after a, an eight-month struggle, she uh, also died. So I've realized from my past experiences confronting death and my own mortality, uh, the importance of embracing loss directly. I don't know about Australians, but Americans have what I consider this misguided need to find what they call closure, closure from loss. And I think it's misguided because I feel we would be wiser to do the opposite, to embrace loss, to embrace the pain of loss, to hold it close to you and take from it everything that it has to offer. And that's what I chose to do with the loss of my wife. I feel that I found uh, a healthy path forward in my own life, that I have found that path because I've learned over the course of my life how quickly all of us cannot be alive. And I've learned to live my life in, in deep appreciation of, of everything I have. And, and that's giving me so much fulfillment and, and meaning uh, that's informed the uh, ability I have to continue to move forward in, in not, not just a healthy way, but I think a, a way that just as fully as I can and embraces the years that I have left in front of me with, with deep gratitude. That's so beautiful. During the pandemic, like all of us, I had a lot more time to, to read and I went back to the Greek and Roman Stoics, and I had been interested in them in the 80s and 90s. And then I revisited the Stoics, and, and I have been able to pull even more uh, new meaning uh, from their teachings. And I've learned from them uh, the importance that I've known all along, that I mentioned yesterday in my presentation, the importance of knowing how to distinguish things that you can control from things that you can't control, and to focus on the former and let the latter go. Uh, and so few of us consciously do that as a practice. And then as a practice, uh, I also learned from the Stoics to live with as deep and full empathy as you can uh, with other human beings. And I've extended their philosophy to include all living beings. And I don't know, maybe it's just the age I'm getting to, but I find I have more and more empathy for everything. I don't even try to swap flies anymore. I just open the door and chew them out, <laughs> things like that, just to uh, live with as much uh, awareness and, and fullness and, and connection as, as you can go about through your, your daily rounds. So, Rick, do you find comfort in reading the works of people from generations ago to see that innate human struggles are there regardless of the era we're living in? Or do you feel like, oh, man, we're just in a repeat cycle here, every generation repeating, repeating? No, re reading from the ancients or uh, past uh, scholars and thinkers is often reading about challenges that they had that maybe aren't as relevant, but yet that could be. You know, I've just talked about rereading the Stoics, and one thing that prevails through their writings is the fear of death by torture. I mean, everybody had to live with that. It was so common 
that uh, if you were a Roman senator, you might be in good standing one day, and the next day the emperor gets a, a bee in his bonnet, and you're on the rack. And we don't have to live with that threat, although we could, couldn't we, if we don't be mindful about the direction our governments are going. So also, reading the ancients doesn't necessarily give you too much insight into the challenges we're facing from social media, let's say. <laughs> but you know what does always resonate through the ages uh, is the theme and the philosophy and the need for love. And the writings from two and 3,000 years ago about love are just as relevant to us today uh, as they were to our predecessors so many generations ago. Rick, you led Patagonia's environmental initiatives for 15 years, worked closely with the company over the years. I was so curious to hear your reflections on the recent announcement that the Chouinards made. And Well, just two months ago, uh, the Chouinard family, uh, the sole owners of uh, Patagonia, made the decision to transfer the ownership of the company, 100% of their shares, to a foundation, the Patagonia Purpose Foundation, that has all the uh, voting rights in the company uh, and is required by the charter of the trust to manage the company for its core values. Uh, and then the rest of the shares uh, went into an NGO, uh, and the United States is called a 501c3, the tax classification. <laughs> we won't bore you with those details, but but uh, that organization, in turn, is uh, chartered uh, to have to take all of the company's profits uh, and um, grant them to uh, groups on the ground doing the work to protect our home planet. Effectively, that means that the company is now owned by the home planet. Uh, and that's a completely new model of capitalism. It's my and uh, all of my colleagues at Patagonia and the board of directors of Patagonia's hope that other companies will wake up and follow Patagonia's lead. Mm. I have to say that for um, our involvement with Patagonia here in Oz, the granting process and experience is just so amazing. You know, from having the experience of getting uh, an application from you know, a little old lady down the southwest of Western Australia who just wants to plant, you know, a few thousand trees and is, please, please, I need $40 for fuel to pay for the whippersnipper to, to clear a bit of land and, and you know, just the, the very roots-oriented um, support of these individuals and community groups is just so amazing. And to think that Patagonia now has just upped that ability to support those of us working in those very clear, tangible feet in the soil. Hands are facing down and busy. No hands are up. They're just down and busy is really exciting for us and for, it sounds like, everyone involved with Patagonia. Yeah. And how that plays out is yet to be seen in, in Australia. Uh, but what has happened that will have a undoubtedly big impact on the philanthropy that gets dispersed here in Australia uh, is the fact that the company's uh, grants uh, are now going to increase tenfold. So that the previous commitment to give 1% of its revenue off the top to NGOs remains in place, but with all the profits coming after that now going back on the ground, that's a tenfold increase, and that's huge. Mm -hmm. I was curious to, to know how you categorize the decision by the Chouinards. Is it an act of defiance, of love, or all of the above, or something well, else entirely? Uh, certainly, it's not an act of selfishness in any way. <laughs> uh, they had to you know, let go of their personal wealth, but they did that because they don't need any more money that, than they have because they live pretty simply. <laughs> so uh, let's hope that they're more corporate owners out there who can are more uh, uh, wealthy people who can understand that they don't need to have so much stuff in their life. That's the first thing that needs to happen. I also think that for the Chenards, it was a relief uh, knowing that even when they're gone, the company that they created is going to uh, be there 
to serve as a tool for environmental protection foremost uh, and to serve that goal forevermore. And I know that that's a a deep relief to them, uh, a big sigh. I was on a phone call with Yvonne and some others just a few days ago, and somebody asked him how it how it felt, and he if there was anything that was different. And he said, well, yeah. He said, now I'm still an employee, but I have to report to my daughter, and she's going to be writing my performance evaluation. <laughs> 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 but... But his daughter is uh, going to be, uh, you know, leading the, the board that oversees the company's uh, commitments that have to be honored. And foremost, as I said, is that commitment to philanthropy, to giving back, to supporting the, the people doing the work, including the, the old lady out there clearing her little, little Hector <laughs> and restoring it. Rick, to close, I wanted to ask you about time, precious time on this planet. What have you found to be most worthy of your time as you look back over seven decades, and what has been least worthy of your time in retrospect? As I said earlier, I started out focused on the sports, uh, and getting to the top of the mountain seemed to be what the goal was about. But I said in my presentation, and I write in my book, that over the years and decades, I learned that that isn't really the goal at all, uh, that it's uh, the way you get there that counts. That if you think it through, um, then you start to understand that uh, the biggest benefit to you personally from climbing a mountain is going to be the insights that you can get about yourself, uh, the learnings that you can take away from the mountain and take back to your sea level life. And if all you get from that is a sense that you can go to the cocktail party and boast that because you paid a hundred thousand dollars, you climb Mount Everest, that as Yvonne says, you're just shortchanging your, yourself. So that I've learned over the years that the summit doesn't really matter. It's a, it's a false, uh, goal. And I've learned over the years that the trips that meant the most to me looking back on them now, were the ones where it wasn't about me and it wasn't about getting the top of a mountain, but it was about using our skills as mountaineers to tell the world and to uh, explain through our stories from our adventures what was going on with the world, what the challenges were facing the world, and what maybe some of the solutions were to those. Uh, And those were the trips I made uh, in the latter part of my life as an adventurer, and those are the ones looking back on it now that mean the most. And with whatever years I have left in my life looking forward, I hope just to focus them on doing whatever I can and using whatever tools are in my box to save what's left of uh, our wild and wonderful world. Thanks for listening with us today. If you have a spare moment, please leave us a review or consider sharing an episode with a friend. Both help us to find the very best stories from our global community of water people. This episode was edited by Ben Alexander. The podcast soundtrack was composed by Shannon Sol Carroll, with additional tunes improvised by Ben Alexander. We'll be continuing today's conversation on Instagram, where we're at Water People Podcasts.